else staying with us? Miss Crystal, what's that old saying about the wood being wet? <laughs> I can't remember it. I'll say it. We're going to sing how deep our Father's love for us as we continue to um, just prepare our hearts for communion here later in the service. That's why we picked that choir song was to just kind of set our hearts um, and remind us of exactly what did take place at Calvary um, and the price that was paid there. So will you sing with us? so much um, just for the reminder that from the very beginning Jesus could see the cross God Lord he knew his job and mission here on earth Lord and he fulfilled it perfectly God and um, Lord my favorite line in that song is that 
He loved me, yet he knew me. And God, you know each one of us better than anybody else in this building. You know um, our actions and our words, God, but even more importantly, you know our thoughts, God. And you love us anyways. So this morning, God, may we just be reminded of your mercy and grace, God, as we um, study the Garden of Gethsemane, God. And may we just be reminded that um, ultimately we're all to be tools of grace because we've been shown more grace than we're ever going to be able to give back to others, God. So, Lord, will you just um, renew in us this morning a Christ-like love that can outflow um, beyond measures to our community and to our families, God. Um, will you just remind us how deep your love truly is for us, God. May we um, just feel the presence of your spirit this morning as we open up your word to study and worship through that, God. Lord, we just love you and praise you and thank you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Dismissed to Children's Church in the back. Okay, as the children leave for Children's Church, turn to Luke chapter 22. Luke 22, uh, verse 39 through 53. What can we learn or what should we learn about Christ from his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane? What should we learn about Christ from his time of deep, intense, personal praying in the Garden of of Gethsemane. A word about communion before I preach this text in Luke 22, 39. At the end of the message, we will serve communion. We're doing that about once a month now. And so as it comes around today, we've, I know we've switched up on us several times. There'll actually be two cups that you'll get, one with juice and one with bread. Trying something new, okay? Imagine that. So I'm grateful to Jeff and Crystal and those who helped prepare that. But when it comes around, get, get one of each, and then I'll lead us in serving. So with that said, as we anticipate communion, what can we learn about communion from the prayer of Christ? That should be one of the things on our hearts and minds this morning. Luke twenty-two thirty-nine. We've been working our way through this lengthy chapter, but it has a lot that obviously is, is vital and crucial, and today is a very sacred, very mysterious and powerful passage, and I will not be able to exhaust in the time that we have. Obviously, that's never the case, but it's especially the case this morning with Jesus praying to his Father in the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives. So look at 2239. He came out and proceeded as was his custom. So this was a regular place for this kind of prayer. He proceeded as was his custom to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples also followed him. A disciple is a follower of Christ. And in this moment, they are following Jesus. So when he arrived at the place... It's, it's almost as if it goes without saying what the place was and what the place 
was about to entail. He said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. He withdrew from them about a stone's throw. So he goes further here, both literally and spiritually, than they would be able to go. And he knelt down, in verse 41, and began to pray, saying, Father, that immediately takes me back to what Brother Howard read from our Lord's Prayer. Father, Father, Abba, one of the other Gospels indicates here, a very personal, intimate word for his relationship with his Heavenly Father, if thou art willing... If thou art willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but thine be done. Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him, and being in agony, being in agony, he was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. Now, what's interesting is that next week we will learn that this was a night cold enough for Peter to need a fire to be warmed by. So what is it that is so tormenting? What is, what is it that is so agonizing that Christ is, as he prays, his sweat is like drops of blood falling down upon the ground? So we are looking into here the heart, the mind, the soul of, of God the Son in, in, in agony over the cup. Falling down, look at verse 44, falling down upon the ground. In verse 45, and when he rose from prayer, he rises from prayer, he came to the disciples and he found them sleeping from sorrow. They are exhausted. They are limited. They are grieving. Mark's gospel tells us that this occurred three times. This whole scenario of him coming to his disciples and they're asleep. He's coming to his disciples and they're asleep. He's coming to his disciples. And, and so there are several connections that we could make there. Uh, also in regards to Peter later and his three denials. Um, but we must move on. So the disciples are sleeping from sorrow. And so he says to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. And while he was still speaking, behold, a multitude came. This, this mob comes at him. And the one called Judas, one of the twelve, was preceding them. And he approached Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man? Are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? Last week we saw that they misunderstood what he was saying spiritually. And they said, well, we've got, we've got two swords here right now. We're ready, Jesus. We've got our swords and we're ready to fight. And so verse 50 says, a certain one of them, we know this is Peter, he struck the, he didn't even ask. He just, 
he just pulls out his sword and he strikes the slave of the high priest and he cuts off his right ear. Now, my thinking is that Peter in this moment really tried to behead him. I think he was probably aiming for the whole head and cut off his ear. And Jesus answered and said, stop, no more of this. Very similar to last week's, that's enough, that's enough. You guys aren't understanding this, you guys are not responding correctly. You're sleeping and now you're pulling out your swords, you're all over the place. Stop. And Jesus touched his ear and he healed him. Right there in this moment of crisis, this mob coming at him, he reaches up and undoes the damage that Peter had done. And someone remarked that Jesus is still undoing the damage that his disciples have done in our moments of zealousness. So Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple... And the elders who had come against him, have you, have you come out with swords and clubs? As if I'm a robber? While I was with you daily in the temple, <clears throat> you did not lay hands on me. But this hour and the power of darkness are yours. This was, in this moment... In this time, an hour for the power of darkness. Father, we are grateful that Christ is the light who shines in the darkness. And darkness will not and cannot overcome him. So Father, in our time of trouble, in our seasons of testing, in our temptations, in whatever personal torment we may go through at a moment, We take great comfort in knowing that Christ has already gone much further than we could ever go. I thank you that in the Garden of Gethsemane, his heart was prepared to fully do your will and to meet his divine destiny and appointment with the cross. And as our songs already have prepared us, he could see the cross. And he could see you and me. And because he loved us, Because he loved you, Father, and put you above all, he fulfilled that will and that purpose. May we understand more of Christ and the cup this morning through our text and our time together. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I have a lot of thoughts this morning circling around this passage because it's such a rich, important passage in the life of Jesus, Uh, but I know that we're going to culminate with communion, and so I want to be limited and I want to be focused on some of the things that that I say. But I will say, I think the ultimate point is for us to be amazed at the glory and the grace of Jesus, our Redeemer, in his time of prayer in Gethsemane. We should be amazed by this. We should be in awe of this. We should be humbled and encouraged by this. This is a mysterious, sacred, powerful moment of prayer 
as God the Son communicates to God the Father through God the Spirit in this powerful scene in Gethsemane. And it reminds me, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So a couple of weeks ago, I had a conversation, a brief conversation with a man in Ephesus that I've admired from a distance for for quite some time. Um, I was preaching revival at Ephesus a few weeks ago on, I believe, a Tuesday night, and I saw Mr. Clyde Cook playing the piano there at Ephesus Baptist Church. Some of you may know Clyde Cook. He is a man I admire because my grandfather was pastor over there. He's been faithful. He's been steady. Um, He's a hard worker. But the one thing I remember about Clyde Cook is that he was and is a beekeeper. So some of you may have bought his local honey at places like Ace Hardware in Carrollton. But anyway, we had the service. I preached. He played the piano. And as I was greeting people as they exited the church, I say to Mr. Clyde Cook, are you still making honey? And he says to me, oh, he says, I don't make the honey. <laughs> you know, I'm thinking, stupid me, right? You can't make the honey. He says, I don't make the honey. I just go in and gather it. I just go in and gather it. And I love the thought of that because several levels here. You and I don't make this. We receive the grace that God has provided for us. And the Bible says his word, his grace is as sweet as honey. And I like honey, all right? But then I started thinking, you know, what someone like Clyde Cook does is pretty amazing. I have always been impressed by those guys. And I know they put on those suits, and I know that there's, a, there's an art to it that's unique, but I could never imagine myself going into those areas, those beehives with them swarming all around us. Would, would any of you be willing to do that or try that? I know some of us, I think we may have a couple in here who've done this before. I'm not absolutely sure, okay, but I've, I've got a hunch. I'm impressed with the beekeepers and what they do that is beyond, it's beyond me. And when I see them doing that, to go and receive something that is made by God and his creation, I'm impressed. Now let's multiply that by infinity. And if I say that I could never go into a beehive and pull out the the goodness that's there, I see what Jesus is doing for you and me in Gethsemane. That is way beyond my ability to think, comprehend, adequately explain, fully appreciate. I mean, this is next level going somewhere where we cannot go, doing something we cannot do, and achieving for us something that only God can provide, which is the gospel itself. Christ and his death, Christ and his resurrection, Christ and the new heaven and the new earth. 
I think all of that, listen, all of that was on the line in this moment in Gethsemane. So I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene, and I wonder how he could love us sinners, condemned and unclean. Well, there's pure honey here. And Christ is going into a very sacred place of torment for him. So I've got to get to the message. I want to make a few points along the way. Number one, what do we need to learn about Jesus and his prayer in the garden? One of the things we need to see is first, his reluctance. His reluctance is appropriate. His reluctance is appropriate. Why does he say, if possible, take this cup from me? Wait a second. It sounds as if Jesus is is not looking forward to this. It sounds as if he's cringing. It sounds as if he's about to have an appointment that he really wouldn't mind if it were canceled. Have any of you ever had an appointment that you wouldn't mind were canceled? I called and canceled an appointment just the other day, but that was for my dogs. That was on another level. Oh, sure, we'll cancel it. No problem. But there are appointments and meetings and deadlines and responsibilities that we shrink from. We we cringe when we think about the weightiness of it. So multiply our feelings of reluctance in regards to an assignment or a deadline or or some pressure moment that's coming up. How could Jesus be reluctant? His reluctance is appropriate because the cup contains, just to sum it up, the judgment and the wrath of God do our sin. So you have the perfect son who has never sinned. He has always enjoyed since eternity past perfect communion and fellowship with his heavenly father. Abba, heavenly father. And he knows that he is going to be made sin on our behalf. He is going to, 2 Corinthians 5.21, he is going to become sin on our behalf on the cross. The cup was the death he would die as an atoning sacrifice, bearing the judgment and the penalty that my sin and your sin deserves. He was going to bear that. God is so holy he can't look upon sin with favor. So from the cross, when he says, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He was in that moment being treated by God the Father like sin, which meant he bore judgment and punishment and wrath instead of instead of enjoying favor and communion and perfect fellowship. Now, I just said a lot, but what I was saying was that what the cup contained for Christ was the wrath of God due our sins. So, Any reluctance that we ever feel. Someone was talking to me the other day about two people my age who are facing terminal illnesses. 
We had just gotten done with the Bible study. We were praying for these people. And I made the comment that if that were me, I can imagine what that must feel like. The reluctance that just arises in my own mind and heart when I think, how would I respond if I knew that in just a few days or in just a few weeks, this life would be no longer for me? I'm a pastor, and I believe in heaven, and I believe in eternal life. But the process of getting there causes me to feel reluctant. Even a reluctance that you might would say, well, that's appropriate. When Jesus goes in and prays, if you are willing, remove this cup. He is expressing from his human side and his deity side, fully God, fully man, what he knows is coming down the road on the cross, and that is pure, sinless beauty taking upon itself the punishment and wrath that we deserve. And what he knows is that God is sovereign and only God can take away the cup. God is in total control. God is completely sovereign over this. So the possibility of that being removed could only be granted by sovereign God. I must move on. His reluctance is appropriate because of the nature of the cup that he is about to drink. And by the way, that should change the way we feel when we this morning hold our cup. It should deepen our understanding of what he drank on our behalf so that the cup for us can be a cup of gratitude and a cup of celebration and a cup of remembering. He, he became a curse for us, and that's what this hesitation and reluctance is about. Number two, and you're like, oh, my, man, if he goes through all these like this, we'll never get to communion. His resignation is absolute. His resignation is absolute. Total resignation. Now, people have called the last couple of years, COVID and all its effects, the great resignation. And what that means is, is that people have quit things that they're never going to start back again. You heard this phrase, the great resignation. Jesus completely resigns himself to the Father's will. Total resignation. Absolute resignation. Here it is. Not my will, but yours be done. So he expresses all of his emotions. He pours out his heart before the Father. But the caveat at the end of that is not my will be done, but your will be done. And what are we taught to pray in the Lord's Prayer? Your will be done. Your kingdom come. This shows us the level of surrender that Jesus was, was enabled and willing to go through so that you and I could be saved. Complete surrender. Complete resignation. Tim Keller said this about this moment. Jesus submits his loudest desires to his deepest desire. We've got all these desires and all these emotions. You and I are a mixed bag of emotions most all the time. But there's one desire that ought to transcend them all. And that is the desire to do our Heavenly Father's will. 
This is how I feel. This is who I am. This is where I am. But I know you're sovereign. Therefore, you have the if possible. But I also know you're good. And I know your will is good. So here's my heart. But not my will, which is sinful, faulty, limited. Your will be done. Someone asked me recently, how did, how did you become a pastor? Well, now at 52, looking back to 17, 18, when God really began dealing with me on this issue and this call, I had extreme reluctance and hesitation. But as I thought back, it was just a series of yeses to what I felt like was a higher will than things that I wanted and felt and just continue to say yes Lord in all the situations that are before you and he will lead you in the ultimate path that he has before you and you'll look back and say man there were some difficult moments man there were some tormenting nights man there were some seasons when I didn't have a clue as to what I wanted to be how do we get there not my will, but your will be done. I must move on. His resignation was absolute. His righteousness is perfect. Here's the thing. Not only does Jesus express here his willingness to do God's will, but he actually follows through with the execution to do his will. He not only says it, but he puts it into practice. And my point here is that he truly is the son of man. He truly is the son of man. He wills God's will. He prepares to do God's will. And then, lo and behold, he actually does God's will, the Father's plan, in a perfect way without any mixture of sin. My motives in this fleshly body and this fallen world are never completely pure. Not even 99 and 44 one hundredths percent pure. His righteousness was absolutely perfect and pure through the Garden of Gethsemane through the trial, through everything that he faced, all the way to the cross. Adam and Eve had failed the test. Cain failed the test. Peter failed the test. We all failed the test because all of us failed to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, all of our strength. And we failed to love our neighbor as ourselves. But in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus fulfills the law of God perfectly. He is perfectly righteous on my behalf. You and I would have been like the other, other disciples, including the inner three. He would have been coming back and saying, Neil, why are you asleep? And I would say, well, I've fallen asleep a lot in church, right? I mean, that's just me, right? I'm weak. I'm limited. I can't be all in on my own. But you and I serve a Savior who was completely all in. And Gethsemane proves his righteousness and that's the righteousness that you and I have credited to our account not my prayer life because <laughs> I'm there with the rest of the guys hey wake up I've told you this a thousand times my youth pastor gave us an assignment and a journal you pray 10 minutes every night I'm going to do it 
got my list out, prayed as long and as hard and as fervently as I could. I looked up at my clock, two minutes had gone by. We'll never make it. He made it all the way through the Garden of Gethsemane. His righteousness is perfect, perfect submission. All is at rest. I and my Savior am happy and blessed. Number four, as we come to a closer close, his readiness is complete. He is completely ready. Now you know what it's like. you got something big that you're preparing for. So you go to your office, you go to your study, you go to your weight room, you go to your wherever you go, and you put that underneath the water that you can't see, the tip of the, that, that underneath private work that you do, that nobody else sees. And you come through that preparation, and now you feel like, I'm ready. Jesus goes through Gethsemane and its torment and its pain and its struggle and he comes through it. He rises from prayer and he's ready. You know what he says in uh, Mark? Here it is. Rise, let's go. Let us be going. The one who betrays me is at hand. None of this surprised Jesus. In fact, he put himself in that garden to be taken by Judas and the mob. He's there for a reason. He's in a position where through his praying, he was placing himself in advance in a place in which God's will would be fulfilled in this particular garden. He was ready. Remember what Peter said last week? I'm ready, Jesus. I'll, I'll die for you. I'll go to prison for you. Peter, you're not ready. And so many times in my life, I have had to say to myself in correction, you thought you were ready, but you were not ready. You were not as ready as you thought you were. were you? You, aren't as, you, aren't, you aren't as far along in this thing called discipleship as you, as you thought you were, are you? No, Lord, I'm not. I'm struggling in this, I'm struggling in this, I'm struggling in this. In contrast to the lack of readiness by the disciples and you and me, Jesus was completely ready to fulfill God's will of the cross and the resurrection. Anytime I've preached through this, I go back to 2001, 9-11, and the incredible story of Todd Beamer on Flight 93, United Airlines, they realize what's going on at that moment in our country. They realize what their plane is about to be used for. They get in the back of the plane, he and a few others, gather a plan. He was, I think, 30, 32 years old about this time. They make a few calls. They... They, they pray the Lord's Prayer. They say together Psalm 23. And then they rise from that little huddle in the back of that plane. And he says, and you've heard it, let's roll. In that moment, 
how Todd Beamer and those other leaders on that plane got themselves ready for what? For sacrifice, ready for death, for the sake of something greater. When Jesus goes into Gethsemane and he goes to a place that he comes back and he gathers his disciples and he says, let's roll. The difference here is that when the rolling really starts, Jesus is left alone. He was left alone. They all began fleeing. They all began denying. We'll get into that later. But, but here's the point. Jesus rose from praying in Gethsemane completely ready and that's really the model for you and me in facing any trial, any temptation. Let me preach to you for just a second, because I wrote something down for me and you. And then I typed it so I could actually read it when I got up here. Literally, let me be the preacher for just a minute. In your situation, and only you know what it is, Jerry reminded us last week that I think it was Vance Havner that says every person here is trying to swallow something in their life that just won't go down. I could relate to that kind of wisdom. In your situation, go to God. Present your request to Him. Pour out your heart to Him with all your desires and all your emotions. Go to Him first. Go to Him early. Go to Him often. Lay those burdens and situations at his feet. Then live with the knowledge that his will is best, even when it feels terrible and even when it feels painful. We cannot force matters. We cannot avoid painful situations, painful appointments. We must not take matters into our own hands. God will redeem this. He will work it for good. He will make it beautiful in his time and meaningful in his time in ways that we never imagined. Gethsemane, the cross, the resurrection is the ultimate proof that our Father truly knows best. Trust His process, trust His grace. Jesus was completely ready. I'll close with this. Number five, His redemption is merciful. His redemption is merciful. I can't think of a better way to close this scene in this passage than Peter whipping out his sword, cutting off an ear in fleshly response and worldly anger, using the world's methods, the world's responses, the world's power, the world's ways, and he whips out that sword to, to take vengeance. I'll settle this, Jesus. We'll take matters in our own hand, and he cuts off the servant's ear. And what does Christ do with his grace and mercy? He reaches up and miraculously, and in, a, in a single moment, heals the ear of one of the people who had come to arrest him. What a merciful Savior we have. Look at the power of his redemption. He says to us, no more of this. Now, there's been times in my life when if I had had a sword at the right moment, <laughs> I might be in jail now. And this is past, this, this past week. There was a jogger on a sidewalk. 
West Pacers Ferry in Atlanta where Bennett had gone to play a tennis match. I'm trying to go left. You should never try to go left where I was trying to go left. Cars, choo choo, both ways. I'm staring to the left, and there's a jogger suddenly comes from my right, and I'm not looking because I'm trying to, you know, keep me alive. And when I glance to my right, he goes, And I run some. I'm not, you know, I don't like to run over joggers. <laughs> but as my car, my truck was stopped there, as he went by the, the hood of my truck, he, he did that to the hood of my truck to let me know that I was wrong. He was right, and he's running his race, you know. And I could feel the flesh rise up in me. And I said, just once, just once with this sword, please, you know, roll my window down and sling my insult. No, no, stop. No more of that. In its place, mercy, grace, why? Redemption. Look at what he did for us. Look at what he's done for you. You and I were enemies of God. Strangers on the outside. Deserving wrath. And Jesus goes into Gethsemane. Pours out his heart in prayer. And comes forth ready to die and rise again. And that merciful redemption is the model that you and I are to have in our daily lives. If we claim to be recipients of the grace that not, not, we haven't created this. We can't make this. We only receive what someone else has sacrificed to give. And freely we receive and freely we give. Father, thank you that you have given us a cup to drink from and bread to eat. As we think back to the Lord's prayer, here is bread. Here is daily grace to sustain us that's found in your word and in your love. And we feed upon the grace of the gospel daily to sustain us. And here is a cup. Here's a cup that we can drink gratefully and freely, constantly. It's not a cup of wrath. It's a cup of salvation. Thank you that Jesus drank his cup and gave his body so that we could drink this cup and eat this bread and be sustained by it through our limited, sinful weaknesses. What a Savior we have. To Him be praised. Amen. Amen. If our deacons would come forward now, we will serve communion. As I said earlier, uh, you will receive a tray, take both bread and a cup, and then I'll lead us in taking both uh, after that.
Paul writes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 11 about the importance of this meal and all it represents. He says, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And they did eat. Amen. Thanks be to God for the bread of Christ. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And they did drink. Amen. Thanks be to God for the cup of Jesus Christ. As often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Amen. Let's stand and sing our hymn of invitation. Come as we sing. so glad that all of us were able to be here today. Thank you so much for worshiping at Glenlock. Don't forget uh, youth, children at 6, uh, deacons meeting at 6, conference at 7, and choir at 5. I think I covered just about everything. Just show up, all right? Just show up.
Um, Catherine, if you'll close our service. Thank you, church, by the way, for the gift of love and appreciation. Uh, before pastor appreciation, so y'all got that covered already, all right? Thank you very much, Bryson and Glenlock, for that grace. And Old McDermott Farm. I see Bryson, they're doing Old McDermott Farm today. That was the only other thing. Let's sing the doxology to close together. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above, ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Have a great week.